Don't you love to study the Word? Isn't this fun? So guys, we are going to be in Revelation 11 tonight. If you don't have yet a calendar for the rest of the year on the well, there's some out there before you leave, and it might just uh, give you a little heads up when we're going to be here, when we're not, because next week is July the 1st, which means it's our patriotic day, which means we're baptizing out in Blue Springs Lake for the afternoon, which means we won't be here again. So uh, don't show up next week. Show up to Blue Springs Lake and see a bunch of baptisms and uh, enjoy the uh, all-church picnic with us. And then we're going to make a big run through July and most of August, and then take a little break right there back to school, and then we're going to jump back into September, push all the way through to October, and we're going to go line by line through the rest of the book of Revelation before the year is over. So tonight is a great chapter, Revelation chapter 11. Don't you love um, parts of the Bible that generate the most controversy, the most mystery? Revelation 11 is one of those chapters. Who are these two witnesses? They are unnamed. We know they show up in the tribulation as two of God's prophets to the nations. And that they will prophesy Jesus as the Son of God. And they will indeed be a witness of the true and living Son of God in the face of the Antichrist. Many will come to Christ by their witness. And, uh, you know, kind of the big mystery is who are these guys? Well, that's what we're going to study tonight. So let's pray together. You jot down your questions or comments and we'll have some Q&A when we're done. Jesus, thank you tonight for the chance to gather, to study your amazing word. Would you help us tonight to be filled with the Spirit of God, to understand the Word of God, to make us more like, I pray, the Son of God. And Jesus, uh, guide our discussion at the end, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. So thankful you've joined us once again. We're in Revelation chapter 11. Chapter 11 is about two witnesses that will testify the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire world for three and a half years during the tribulation. Now, it has been called one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all the Bible. I personally would disagree somewhat with that. It's not especially hard to understand, but like what you've heard me say many times before, the book of Revelation is not hard to understand, just sometimes really hard to believe. Revelation chapter 11, like Revelation 10, is a parenthetical chapter. In other words, it's a parenthesis that God is inserting uh, right in the middle of the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment. And God gives us a little more depth, a little more insight. You've heard me say that Revelation shouldn't be read chronologically or linearly, but rather it's in layers. God gives us more depth, more detail, more description, uh, layer after layer. That's what God is doing once again with Revelation chapter 11. Now, there are three keys to understand chapter 11, all right? First of all is this. You need to understand this is an essentially Jewish chapter. Now, why would that be? I, I told you last time, by Revelation 10, really by the time of the tribulation, the church age is over. The church is mentioned no less than 17 times in Revelation 1 through 3, but it's not mentioned again whatsoever from Revelation chapter 4 
all the way to Revelation 19 and verse 11. And the reason why is those chapters deal with a description of the tribulation. And the church isn't there. And so God has turned his attention once again from the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles are over. He turns attention once again to Israel and the Jews specifically preparing them to receive their Jewish Messiah. And that is why this chapter deals specifically with Jewish themes like the Jewish temple. Now I'm going to tell you, when you mention the temple uh, to Orthodox Jews, you better believe they're listening. They are leaning in. Their ears are wide open uh, because the temple is the most important part of Jewish worship. Jews cannot worship not fully without the temple. So it clearly has Jewish themes, Jewish temples associated then with a Jewish chapter. This is a prophetic chapter. We know it's prophetic because we see there's a temple and a Jewish temple specifically in Revelation 11 and verse 1. Look at what it says. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Now, a very popular view of the book of Revelation is what's called preterism. Preterist theologians teach that Revelation is not really prophecy, it's just history, and that John was writing uh, in code with the cultural backdrop of his day in the first century, and basically all the contents of Revelation was fulfilled by 70 AD with the Roman invasion and subsequent destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But I want you to see the preterist theology cannot be true of Revelation. This must be prophecy. It cannot be history because John's writing after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He's writing about 95 AD. And the temple has been gone for at least 20 years. So as John is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it must be referring to a future temple. See, John's not dealing with history. He's not dealing with events that have already happened at all. And an honest reading of the text uh, becomes emphatically clear if we're not so committed to our theological systems and traditions and just study what the Bible says. That's why I say it's not hard to understand, just sometimes hard to believe, and it's really hard to believe when it contradicts my theology. Uh, so what else do we need to know? Well, first of all, um, it's a Jewish chapter. Second, we're dealing with prophecy. And third, this must be interpreted literally. Just let's take literally what God says, and let's take literally uh, what John is seeing. You see the temptation often throughout all of Scripture, but especially the book of Revelation, is to merely make allegory or interpret something symbolically out of something that God intends for us to understand literally. In this chapter, you have a great city. It's a literal city. You have two witnesses. They are literal people. Uh, you have literal days and months. Uh, you have these witnesses that will literally die. You have them literally being resurrected. And so let's just take it the way God intends it and believe what God says and not try to read our own interpretation into it. Now, verses 1 and 2 tell us the Jews will have a temple during the tribulation. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. Now, this future temple undoubtedly is a part of the peace covenant, this peace treaty 
that will be brokered by this coming prince of Daniel 9, verse 27. That coming prince, of course, being the Antichrist, this political figure that will ride onto the world scene. Revelation chapter 6, he's riding a white horse. He has a bow but no arrows because he comes to world power and prominence under the banner of peace. He comes to a place of world power without even firing a shot at his enemies. And Daniel 9.27 tells us that he will broker a peace treaty, a seven-year covenant with Israel and her enemies. And the signing of that peace covenant actually begins the seven-year countdown to Armageddon, the seven-year countdown to the second coming of Christ. Traditionally, it's been taught that the seven-year tribulation begins with the rapture, if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. That's actually not true. It's actually the signing of that peace covenant that could come weeks, if not months, after the rapture. But we know, according to Daniel 9.27, he will break that peace treaty midway through the tribulation at the three-and-a-half-year mark. He causes the sacrifices to cease. Now we know the Jews have rebuilt their temple or there wouldn't be any sacrifices to cease. You see, the sacrifices ceased in 70 A.D. They haven't had a temple since then. John now sees a future temple. And those, worship, those worshipers of the Jewish tradition are bringing sacrifices according to the law of Moses, the Levitical system. And now in Daniel 9.27, he breaks that peace treaty, he bans the Jewish religion, he causes the sacrifices to cease midway through that tribulation. Now, that implies there has to be a rebuilt temple, and now John sees it specifically. Uh, we know there's five temples in Scripture, uh, and this is the tribulation temple, the fourth temple. The first temple is actually, of course, built by Solomon. You know that. Uh, King Solomon built that temple. Uh, a house for his God, and that's chronicled in Second Chronicles and uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, First and Second Kings. Uh, everything was really building toward the, the the temple finally being built as David bought the threshing floor and he laid the platform and really laid the foundation. Then for his son Solomon to finally come and build a house for God, the temple of God. That temple, of course, was destroyed by the Babylonians uh, with their invasion in 587 B.C. And then what happens? Well, under the Persian rulership, the Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem after the Babylonians fell and the Persians took over as the monarchs of the ancient world. They were allowed to go back then under Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel rebuilt the Jewish temple. And there was great revival then in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. However, it didn't last. And of course, the Greeks would come. And in 168 B.C., the Grecian king Antiochus Epiphanes would desecrate and destroy the temple to have it rebuilt then by King Herod uh, around the time of Christ. And by the time of Christ, Herod's temple was one of the great splendors of the world. But of course, what would happen in 70 A.D. with the Roman general Titus and the 10th legion, they would come and destroy that temple. And that temple then has never been rebuilt. What John now sees is the fourth temple, the tribulation temple, not to be uh, in any way uh, confused with the millennial temple that will exist during the millennial reign and the millennial kingdom. Now, Christ would elude to this very thing. In Matthew 24 and verse 15, he refers to the abomination of desolation. What is that? He said the abomination of desolation spoken of by 
Daniel the prophet. Now in some way, we're going to learn in the next lesson as we study Daniel chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes, this evil, evil Grecian king, was in some way a foreshadow doctrinally and prophetically of the Antichrist that is to come. In 167 B.C., he uh, takes a, a pig, an unclean animal, an abomination to the Jews. And he takes a sow and he slaughters it on the altar of God in the temple of God. And he sprinkles that blood on the bronzen uh, altar and around the Holy of Holies, completely desecrating the temple. He doesn't stop there. He sets up a, an altar to Zeus and the Holy of Holies, a, a graven image, an idol to the Greek god Zeus. And Daniel uh, speaks of this, and now Jesus in Matthew 24 specifically says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, what we know when Jesus said those words is he could not have been referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. That was 200 years in history by the time Jesus was speaking those words. He must be speaking of another ruler who in a similar way will bring desecration on the temple, the tribulation specifically. And he was teaching in some way, like Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. There's a future and final fulfillment that is coming, and we know exactly what's going to happen. Daniel 9.27, as the Antichrist bans Jewish religion, causes the sacrifices to cease. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us he will go into the temple of God, he will proclaim himself to be God, he himself will sit on the throne of God, he himself will then be worshipped as God. That happens midway through the tribulation time. You see, we know in some way there has to be a future temple rebuilt for any of that to happen uh, prophetically. And of course it's going to happen because it says it right here in Revelation chapter 11 as John is given a measuring read. He says, go measure the temple and the people therein. Now, what is amazing is we can see this prophecy already emerging in some capacity. The platform and the props and the players are already being positioned. Uh, there's currently a growing movement of Orthodox Jews in Israel called the Temple Mount Faithful who desire to rebuild the Jewish temple. Uh, there's organizations throughout Israel of Orthodox Jews, the Temple Mount Faithful, just one of them. And they are working feverishly to prepare so they can begin to worship according to their Levitical system, the Law of Moses, and that sacrificial system, which they haven't been able to do since 70 A.D. Now, if you go to Israel, the Holy Land, you can see Orthodox Jews daily at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, um, one of the iconic images of Jerusalem. You can Google these images and just Google Wailing Wall, and you can see Orthodox Jews there. Why is that the most holy site in Judaism to this day? Because it's the only remaining part of the temple that was destroyed in 70 A.D. And they are praying, and they are petitioning their God for the Jewish Messiah to finally come so that they can finally rebuild their temple and begin to worship once again according to the tradition of their forefathers. And what is happening right now even without a temple, is they are preparing the temple elements of worship. The Jewish menorah, the candelabra, is even on display. As you come up out of the wailing wall and you come up from the western wall and come up the steps, I saw something last time on our Holy Land tour that I hadn't seen in my previous times there. 
and about a six-foot golden candlestick, the Jewish menorah, on display. And right there they're saying, this is the future menorah that will be used in the future temple when we get to rebuild it. Even now they're doing DNA testing to determine who the Levites are, who are the tribe and the Jews that specifically qualify uh, to be instituted to the priesthood so they can begin worshiping once again according to their sacrificial system. Now a lot of this seems far-fetched for a number of reasons. First of all, for the Jews to rebuild their temple uh, is going to be very difficult to do without launching another world war or at least all-out war throughout the Middle East because, not so coincidentally, the Dome of the Rock sits on what is believed to be the very site of the Jewish temple. The Dome of the Rock is said to sit on the very site of the Holy of Holies, and where the Holy of Holies once stood. And of course, what uh, the uh, uh, is, uh, Muslims would do in the ancient days is not unique to what they do today. In 638 A.D., with the fall of Jerusalem, uh, they would build a trophy or a shrine over the most holy site of those conquered people. And that is when they built the Dome of the Rock, what is now the third most holy site in all of Islam. And the reason it's a holy site to Islam is they believe that is where Abraham ascended back into heaven. Now here's the point. How can the Jews rebuild their temple if the Dome of the Rock is sitting there? Currently, it's believed that it sits on the ruins of the Jewish temple. And the third most holy site of Islam is the Dome of the Rock. So it just seems like an impossible scenario for the prophecy of Revelation 11 to actually be fulfilled. This is the site believed by many Christians in Genesis 22, where Abraham offered up Isaac. Now, of course, Muslims believe that the Jews hijacked that part of their history and wrote in Isaac, whereas they believe it was actually Ishmael that was born. But you see, either way, it's a very holy site to Jews, to Christians, and to Muslims. And so it just seems like an impossible scenario that it could ever be rebuilt. Uh, they teach that it was actually Abraham's son is, uh, Ishmael. Christians, of course, believe it was Isaac. Jews believe it was Isaac. Uh, Luke 21, 24. Listen carefully what Jesus said. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So what happens? In 1967, I've talked about this, I think, recently. The Jews rolled back in Jerusalem for the first time since 70 A.D. when they were driven out of Jerusalem. Then the Romans completely banned them from the land of Israel in about 135 A.D., driven out legally. They couldn't return. Of course, God promised that because of the rebellion, they would be scattered abroad through other nations, and then God promised that he would one day bring them back again. And that all began shortly after World War I with the Balfour Declaration, 1917. The Jews began returning to the land. Then 1948, the British... Uh, abandon it, give it back to the Jews, say you can become a nation if you can hang on to it, it's yours, and miraculously uh, God intervenes militarily, and indeed they are reborn as a nation, 1948, but they still didn't have Jerusalem. It was still trampled underfoot by Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles were fulfilled in 1967 when the Jews, at the end of the Six Days War, took back the city of Jerusalem. Now, at the conclusion of the Six Days War, it was a super sign, a sure sign, the times of the Gentiles were coming to a close. But the question remained, and the question still remains, 
how will the Jews ever be able to rebuild their temple without inciting a world war? Now, just a matter of years ago, there's a couple of possibilities. I want to just talk about some scenarios. Just we're going to speculate a little bit here. How will this prophecy be fulfilled? Well, there's a couple of options that are very plausible. A number of years ago, archaeologists began to study through a much more modern technology where the Jewish temple actually one day stood and actually the site may be different than what is believed traditionally. It's possible the Dome of the Rock and the temple could coexist because uh, they actually used some technology from the air and from the air they were actually able to see and outline the parameters of an ancient building that once stood on what is the Temple Mount and it is believed that that would be what was once the Jewish temple. And if indeed they are right, what they can see is the Dome of the Rock does not sit specifically, precisely, on top of what was once the Jewish temple, and specifically the Holy of Holies. So many archaeologists and biblical scholars are surmising that maybe one day the Jewish temple could be built side by side with the Dome of the Rock. Uh, because... What is believed today is the Dome of the Rock sits on what was the Holy of Holies actually might not be exactly, precisely where it once stood, but rather by tradition it is currently believed. Is that possible? Maybe. No one can say for sure, but I think it's entirely possible that as the peace treaty is brokered in Daniel 9.27, that part of that peace covenant will be to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple to sit side by side the Dome of the Rock as this world ruler does what no man's ever been able to do before, and that is to bring peace in the Middle East and supposedly a peace between Israel and her enemies. Now, I think there's another possibility. We know there's a coming battle, a future battle. Ezekiel chapter 38, the battle of Gog and Magog, a Russian-Arab coalition will march on Israel at some time in the future. And we know that battle probably happens after the rapture. Why? Because the only thing keeping Israel's enemies from marching on her today is the U.S. military. And they know that the U.S. cavalry will come to Israel's assistance. But the rapture will completely neutralize the U.S. as we know it. We will cease to be a superpower militarily, economically, or politically. And out of that cataclysm, a new leader emerges from that vacuum of leadership. But before that happens, Israel's enemies will see their opportunity to do what they've longed to do since Israel became a nation, and that is to destroy her and annihilate her from off of the map. The stated goal of Islamic terrorism, specifically the Iranians and Hezbollah and Hamas and the PLO, they don't want peace in the Middle East. They don't want a two-state uh, type of scenario where you have Israel living at peace with a Palestinian state. Uh, that's not plausible to them because they want Israel to go away. And so what happens after the rapture, they see their opportunity to march on Israel. Why? Because the U.S. isn't coming. Now what happens, Ezekiel 38 tells us, God will miraculously intervene, raining fire and brimstone down on that Russian Arab army. And with the decimation of their military temporarily, the Arabs will see that they have no choice but to come to peace talks and to come to terms in this peace treaty. Israel will feel like we have nobody to guarantee our safety with the U.S. now neutralized. 
They will look to a new world leader that will emerge to guarantee their peace and safety. And it's possible that because of this war, this battle of Gog and Magog, and you can imagine uh, what's going on in modern warfare with uh, artillery and, um, and airstrikes, that the Dome of the Rock could be destroyed. Or it's possible as God intervenes for Israel that he will destroy the Dome of the Rock with fire and brimstone. And it's possible maybe that the Dome of the Rock is destroyed in the Battle of Gog and Magog and then Israel is allowed to rebuild their temple. I don't know which scenario is true. I just know the Bible tells us that there's coming a temple the Jews will be allowed to rebuild. And in some capacity, it's associated with the Daniel 9.27 peace covenant. Now, Look at what happens here in verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. Now look at verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now look how specific God is with the time frame. He says 42 months. 42 months is exactly three and a half years or one half of the tribulation. Now, it's very difficult to put these events chronologically in the exact order in which they fit. That's the hardest part about uh, the book of Revelation, not understanding what's going to happen, but exactly when will it happen. My guess is that as soon as this peace treaty is signed, that the Jews will begin rebuilding their temple. And with modern um, building operations, I mean, the temple could be rebuilt in a year. It wouldn't take the 20 years that it took under Herod, let's say, to build it. Uh, and it would take a matter of uh, months, maybe, maybe a year, to rebuild their temple. And as a part of this peace covenant, the Antichrist allows the Jews to begin rebuilding. And what we see here in this text is that for three and a half years, two witnesses of God will prophesy from the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and their message will be heard around the world. Look at what it says here. In verse 4, it says this, in verse 4, actually, uh, let's back up to verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, who are these two witnesses? Uh, much controversy, much confusion surrounds. Who are these two witnesses? What you have here are two witnesses of God, two preachers, two prophets that are standing in somewhere outside the rebuilt temple of God or maybe while it's being rebuilt. Now understand, this is going to be international news. This is going to be uh, you know, satellite television at its finest, something that has never been done, never could have been imagined. The Jews rebuilding their temple, coexisting in peace and harmony in the Middle East with their former enemies. And God's going to send two prophets, two people, to proclaim in front of a watching world the true and living Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says they will prophesy or preach for 1260 days or 42 months, exactly three and a half years. Now, I want you to notice that there's so much controversy about who these two people are. Who are they? So much debate about these two witnesses. The Mormons believe that they are the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Uh, you have others believe they're the Old Testament and the New Testament. You have others that say they're the law and the prophets. But I want you to simply understand uh, they are real people. I want you to see these two witnesses for who they are. First of all, they're real people. 
Uh, this is not allegory. God's not speaking symbolically, certainly not of the Bible and the Book of Mormon or the law and the prophets or the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, they're called, watch this, two olive trees and two candlesticks. Now, that's kind of odd. That's kind of curious, isn't it? Clearly now God is speaking symbolically. Now, I've told you before, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. In other words, the Bible is a self-interpreting, self-defining book. When you see symbolism, God doesn't leave it up to your own arbitrary idea or opinion to read into it your own interpretation. You just start searching the scripture, looking where, where is God defining the imagery here. And if you do, you find eventually Zechariah, go to Zechariah chapter 3 and Zechariah chapter 4. At the time Zerubbabel's temple was being rebuilt, he sent two witnesses. Just like as this temple is being rebuilt, he sends two witnesses. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now go to Zechariah chapter 4. And look at what it says in verse 1. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking and there is a lampstand and a solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And so what we learn here is that this olive tree and this lampstand is, first of all, a picture of Joshua, the high priest at that time, and then Zerubbabel. And together they are prophesying and proclaiming and preaching at the time that this temple is being rebuilt. So you go back here to Revelation chapter 11, and what you find is there's another lampstand and another olive tree, two of each. And they're prophesying. And just like it was in the days of Zerubbabel, they're real people. As it is in the days of John, he's seeing real people. Notice they are real people, and they're also prophets. They are preaching. Uh, they're going out to preach, and they're preaching fire and brimstone. They're preaching judgment and justice upon the nations. They are preaching, you better get right with God, repent of your sin, uh, because the true and living Christ is coming, and this one known as the Antichrist, this world leader that so many people are now following, he is a counterfeit, he is a phony. And you better believe that he, they're going to get on the wrong side of the Antichrist in his kingdom, this man who will or has proclaimed himself to be God, some type of Messiah that is demanding to be worshipped under penalty of death. And uh, the remarkable thing here is this. Look at what happens next in verse, uh, verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls, on the day, falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Check this out. People will try to kill them. The Antichrist will undoubtedly dispatch 
uh, military police against them as enemies of the state, shut them up, whatever it takes, take them out. They're going to be persecuted. But watch this. Anytime somebody comes against them to destroy them, fire comes out of their mouth and destroys them, destroys their enemies. You talk about fire and brimstone preaching, literally. I mean, you talk about bad breath. You talk about dragon breath. You hear they're preaching. Somebody stands up, tries to shut them up. and <laughs> Crispy critters. Uh, I, uh, I, I make a habit of keeping a pocket full of Tic Tacs uh, when I preach. And the first thing I do when I get done preaching is pop a Tic Tac into my mouth. You know why? Because I don't want to have bad breath. Well, this brings a whole new definition to bad breath. I mean, you talk about dragon breath. They are literally fire-breathing preachers, and they have the power to destroy their enemies in this manner. And nobody can take them out. God's protecting them. And uh, they have the power uh, to do two things that's mentioned specifically. First of all, in the days that they are proclaiming and prophesying, uh, it does not rain on the earth. And then they also have the power to turn water into blood. Now hang on for that for just a moment because uh, you're going to need to remember that. We're coming back to that. Now, I'm convinced what we're seeing here is a couple of the greatest ever pulpit-pounding, pew-jumping, sin-hating, devil-chasing preachers that have ever existed. They're preaching sin and judgment, that hell is hot and heaven is not. And the Antichrist is a fake and he is a phony and Jesus alone is the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Christ. I'm convinced in some way it will be their testimony that begins to turn Israel back to Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe their preaching that begins to turn the heart of the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7. What we know for sure is that millions will hear them around the world. And Revelation 7 says that millions will come to faith in the true and living Christ of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, and they're going to be preaching, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And it's interesting that these two witnesses, listen, God is so measured in every single word. Listen to Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6. It says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 18. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. God sends two witnesses. It's no coincidence that he sends two witnesses to establish the word of God to establish that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the question is, who are these two witnesses? Much speculation exists about their identity. Once again, great debate. But again, I think the Bible is self-interpreting. Just let the Bible do the talking instead of us doing the arguing. Now, um, we already know that you have two witnesses specifically that was seen with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, who were they? Elijah and Moses. Now, I may be wrong about this. Uh, I may find out later, gee, blew that one all to pieces. But I'm going to tell you, I think it's Elijah and I think it's Moses. I'm going to give you the reasons why. Now, there's other speculation and other people say, well, maybe it's Enoch. And I, I don't know, maybe. But let me just share some thoughts with you specifically uh, when it comes to Elijah and um Moses. First of all, you have the prophecy of Malachi 4, verses 2 through 6. Jot that down. Malachi 4, verses 2 through 6. There's a last prophecy made, and God doesn't say a thing again for about 400 years before Christ comes, preceded by John the Baptist. 
The last thing God says to the Hebrews, the Jews, before the Jewish Messiah will come, and there's 400 years of silent years in between, the last thing he says through the prophet Malachi, Malachi is that Elijah will come before that great and awesome day of the Lord. Elijah. Now, Elijah had been dead by the time of Malachi for generations. But God is prophesying that Elijah is going to return and in some way precede the second coming of Christ. Or in Malachi's day, would have been the first coming of Christ. The Messiah is on the way. In Malachi chapter 4, I'm convinced, is being fulfilled right here in Revelation chapter 11. He sends Elijah before the coming of the Lord. Now you remember when John the Baptist was preaching on the banks of the Jordan, some of them, in John chapter 1, comes to John the Baptist and asks him specifically for this reason. Are you Elijah? Because they knew about this prophecy. Remember, John the Baptist is preaching, uh, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is coming. And those Hebrews knew that for the Messiah to come, he must be preceded by Elijah. So naturally, they thought, well, maybe this is Elijah. Maybe he's Elijah. What did they ask him? Are you Elijah? What did John the Baptist say? Nope. Nope. I'm not the one. I'm not him. But you see, they were looking for Elijah to come before the Messiah for that very reason. Now, it's impossible um, for, uh, for Elijah to have come because we know now that uh, he's preceding the second coming because the Jews rejected him at his first coming. Uh, and uh, that's fulfilled right here in Revelation chapter 11. Now, there's another reason I'm convinced that one of these witnesses is Elijah. Elijah did not experience death. You remember this, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11. God carries him to heaven in a chariot of fire. He never died. And I'm convinced the reason he never died is God is going to bring him back again. And uh, he's going to prophesy once again. According to 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, goes up in a chariot of fire. I'm convinced there's a reason why. God has plans for Elijah. He's going to send him back. Now, there's another clue we have here, and what this is is clues. We're just piecing together the evidence. What is Elijah's miracle he is most remembered for? The days of Ahab and Jezebel. By the way, Ahab and Jezebel in your Old Testament, I'm convinced in some way prophetically doctrinally types of the Antichrist and the great whore of Babylon. All right? Ahab, a picture of the Antichrist, and you have his wife Jezebel, who is a harlot. Revelation 17 calls that end time religion a harlot religion, a harlot bride. Now, in the days of Ahab and Jezebel, you have Elijah. What does he do? He announces that it will not rain on the earth. And indeed, it does not rain on the earth. And what is this plague? What is this miracle that one of these witnesses is able to do? Specifically, it says in verse 6, these have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls on the earth in their day. So uh, it's not conclusive. It's circumstantial evidence. But uh, you can go with who you want to. I'm going with Elijah, at least for one of them. Now, uh, not only on the Mount of Transfiguration was Elijah seen testifying that Jesus is the Son of God, but you had Moses with him. So there's other reasons. I'm convinced the other witness is Moses. For one, you've already seen, I've already shared, he was seen indeed with him. 
Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration because Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, by the way, that prophecy of Malachi 4 could have been fulfilled at Christ's first coming. Just incidental, just kind of a side note, God had it rigged. God's amazing, isn't he? He doesn't miss a thing. He doesn't miss a detail. He knew the Jews were going to reject Jesus, but uh, they were given an opportunity to receive Jesus. And the apostles specifically saw Elijah with Jesus. And so the Malachi 4 prophecy could have been fulfilled, um, but it wasn't. It's going to be fulfilled at the second coming. Now, having said that, who's the second witness here? Well, some go with Enoch. Enoch is a good guess. It really is. And that's all we can do is speculate and guess a little bit. Enoch is a good guess. There's reasons people go with Enoch. Enoch, of course, like Elijah, never died. He was translated. He was raptured. A picture of the church before God brought worldwide ruin. And so consequently, a lot of people go with Enoch. And I understand why. There's evidence for that. And it's a good guess. I'm going instead with Moses. For one thing, Moses was seen with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, but there's another reason why. What is one of the plagues that God brought down on Pharaoh and Egypt through the hand of Moses? That's right. He turned the fresh water into blood. And what's going to happen? In verse 6, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. There's Elijah. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. There's Moses. And so I think the weight of evidence is probably Elijah and Moses because there's so many similarities there. So many similarities I think are, are uh, maybe not conclusive, but certainly very, very compelling. Now, there's one other reason that I'm convinced the second witness is Moses. Moses died, but it's a mystery as to where he was buried. In fact, we're told in Deuteronomy 34 and verse 6 that God himself buried Moses. And nobody else buried Moses. God alone knows where he was buried. Now, why would God do that? Well, maybe, plausibly, uh, he didn't want the Hebrews setting up a shrine to Moses and making some type of religious idol out of uh, Moses because he was so revered by the children of Israel. But I think there's a better possibility. If you go back to Jude 9, what you find is Michael the archangel disputing with Satan. Now, what are they disputing over? You can read this yourself. or You can look at it and look at what it says. They are disputing over the body of Moses. Now, why are they disputing over the body of Moses? Uh, I'm convinced just maybe Satan had a little insight into what God was going to do with Moses sometime toward the time of the end or sometime uh, as God is establishing his kingdom. He wanted the body of Moses. Why? We don't know for sure. All we know is that Michael is disputing over the body of Moses while Satan is disputing over the body of Moses. It's as, it's as though Satan is trying to steal the body of Moses. And we don't know why for sure, but I'm speculating a little bit here. Could it be just maybe the devil thought if he could steal the body of Moses that in some way he could skirt God's plan that he has here in Revelation chapter 11. The whole thing had to do with Moses specifically and his body. In God's plan, I'm convinced that we're now seeing fulfilled through these two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. As God is going to send Elijah back, he's also going to send Moses back to prophesy and proclaim supernaturally. 
uh, God's message during the tribulation. Now, one other thing. Remember what kind of era we're dealing with here in the tribulation. We're dealing here in a Jewish era. God is turning his attention back to the Jews and the salvation of the Jews. Times of the Gentiles is over. Church age is over. It makes a lot of sense that you have Elijah and Moses standing side by side in front of a watching world and specifically the watching Jews. You know why? Because while we as Christians think in terms of uh, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, that is not how Jews think. Jews think in terms of the law and the prophets. What two people in Jewish history embody more the law and the prophets? Obviously. You have Moses who is the lawgiver. He embodies the law. You have Elijah who's considered the greatest prophet in Israel's history. And so you have, in the mind of a Jew at this time, in the tribulation, you have two people who most embody the law and the prophets. Yes, Enoch is a great choice, uh, and I might be wrong, but I'm going, as you can see, with Elijah and with Moses. Now, I want you to see the real people. They are prophets, and they are powerful. They're going to do some amazing preaching, some powerful, powerful preaching. And you better believe millions around the world is going to turn to Jesus because of their preaching. Uh, they're going to have a worldwide audience. And I want you to notice something else, that only in the last generation is this prophecy even possible technologically to be fulfilled. Because they're going to be preaching in front of a watching world. And not only are they going to be preaching and they're powerful and they're able to overcome their enemies literally with fire that comes out of their mouth, but there's going to come a point where indeed they're going to be killed. And the entire world is going to watch this. And look at what it says next here. It says, and when they finish their testimony, verse 7, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth." What's going to happen is God's going to allow them to finally be overcome. God's going to allow them to finally be martyred. They will finally be killed by Satan and the forces probably of the Antichrist. You can see why they are absolutely hated all over the world. Because people even today, in this day, you know, the truth hurts and the truth stings. I mean, it's not exactly, um, you know, the way to fill up uh, giant audiences and great big... Um, auditoriums by preaching you know on hell and by preaching on judgment people want that palatable pleasing preaching about God's love and God's mercy let me tell you these two guys are preaching uh, God's judgment in an age of absolute rebellion and they're going to be hated around the world even now ju just make a statement publicly like Jesus is the only way and see how that is met see how many faces in the room turn red even now, make a statement like, there's not multiple roads to heaven. All religions don't lead. And just see how many people get upset. Now, just imagine these preachers in an age of, uh, you know, um, coexist, where everybody's the same and all roads lead to heaven. 
I'm going to tell you, this is a time where they will be absolutely hated. And somebody once said, there's nothing popular about a prophet. There's no such thing as a popular prophet because the prophet of God usually has an unpopular message. But you know, in this day and age, in the tribulation, they're just going to be absolutely hated. I mean, people are going to party. They're going to throw a worldwide party when they see the dead bodies of these two prophets. Uh, and that's exactly what's going to happen. And they're going to watch for three and a half days, these dead bodies, and they're going to be in a time of revelry, and they're going to throw parties. It's going to be like Christmas and kids on a Sunday morning. They're just changing gifts because their perceived enemies have finally died, and they finally have been overcome. And I want you to see the only way this prophecy is even possible to be fulfilled is through modern technology. Just in the last, really, I don't know, 30, 40 years, is this possible to see anything happening around the world in real time. And for three and a half days, people are going to see their bodies um, being displayed as trophies to the Antichrist. And uh, through modern technology, even now, that's, that's only possible. You see, it could not have in any capacity happened in 70 A.D. or thereafter. Now, I want you to see what happens. God is going to resurrect them in verse 11. And after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Can you imagine in front of a watching world through satellite television, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, whatever it is, wherever it is, people are partying and they are reveling in the fact that their enemies and these fire-breathing preachers are dead and all of a sudden they wake up, they sit up, they shake themselves off, they stand up and they ascend into the heavens, proving once again who the true and living God is. And yes, there will be those who continue to curse them and curse God, but millions around the world will believe that Jesus really is the true and living Christ, the Son of the living God, and they will turn from following the Antichrist. Yes, they will be resurrected, and they will indeed proclaim with this resurrection that Jesus really is the one, and He really is the King, and His kingdom is about to come. I hope you're part of that kingdom. If you know the King, you are already. Let's live for Him. God bless you. Well, there's the two witnesses. A lot coming at you, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot in there. That was a little bit longer lesson, but there's just a whole lot, as you can say, uh, to share. So, uh, questions, thoughts, comments, anybody? Observations? Gary, if you want, hang on just a moment, Gary, till we get a mic to you so we can record this, too. Uh, what significance is there of uh, when President Trump declared Jerusalem the capital of Israel? Do you see any significance there? Prophetically, there is no like book, chapter, and verse that we can say, thus is the Lord, this was going to happen before Jesus could come. There's not. But I think the significance is, again, preparing the platform in some way, the world platform geopolitically 
uh, for this showdown, this treaty of Daniel 9.27. And so historically, the U.S., like all of Western civilization, has been very pro-Israel. We're a Judeo-Christian nation. In other words, our, our roots morally, spiritually. You know, Christianity was the progression of Judaism. And that's what it means to say we're a Judeo-Christian nation. So much of our culture is built on those Judeo-Christian uh, values and traditions. And so the significance, I think, is that the West, even now, is drifting farther and farther away from Israel, where before the West was naturally very pro-Israel because of that Judeo-Christian history. Uh, the last uh, really three or four presidential administrations have really not been pro-Israel. They've been very cool toward Israel because it's just not politically expedient to be pro-Israel. And so uh, really going back to the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, Obama, Obama administration, all these presidents and really their administrations were far less uh, pro-Israel than the ones before them. And so Trump comes along, whatever you think of him, and I'm sure there's a mixed opinion in this building right here tonight, but whatever you think of him, we can all say this is a positive thing that he did, that no other president did. You realize that it was actually Clinton who said, we're going to make Jerusalem the place where the U.S. Embassy sits. Clinton said he would do it. He didn't. Bush said he would do it. He didn't. Obama, I don't know that he ever said he would do it, uh, but the point is nobody would do it. Because everybody knew the implication. Like, if you want to get reelected, this is probably not a good idea. And so along comes Trump, who does this. Now, what does it mean? I think prophetically, it's very significant, not that there's a specific prophecy that said it would happen, but I think what it's doing is preparing the geopolitical scene, the geopolitical climate necessary to create a situation eventually. Uh, that Israel's enemies will march on her. I mean, the moment that they announced what would happen, that we're going to move the, the embassy, to what, what happened on the streets of Jerusalem and all over Israel? I mean, it was rioting. It was absolute chaos. I mean, the animosity, the hatred, right? And so I think the, the biggest significance is that it simply creates a geopolitical uh, mindset necessary one day uh, for the Ezekiel 38 prophecy to happen, the battle of Gog and Magog, Israel's enemies want her gone. And that's really the biggest problem with you know, trying to broker peace in the Middle East. It's that there are people who want peace, and there are people who frankly don't want peace. You know, they don't want a two-state religion, or a two-state solution, I should say. Uh, they really don't want a Palestinian state and an Israeli state, and we can coexist in harmony. That's really not the vision they have of the future. The vision they have for the future is no Israel. And so uh, I think that's the, the, the most we can say about it, Gary. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry. The U.S. will be neutralized. How and why? So I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation, guys. I'm not a, I'm personally not a prepper. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, the U.S. is going to implode, and we don't know when. We just know she's going down, so you better store up all your fresh water, and you better make sure you got, you know, safe full of, you know, ammo. And, you know, I'm not one of those guys, all right? And here's, here's the reason why. Personally, uh, we can see the U.S. weakening already. I mean, let's just be honest. Kingdoms rise and fall. Uh, we are where Great Britain was about a hundred years ago. 
There was a time that the sun never set on the English Empire, right? They had colonies everywhere in every hemisphere. And uh, about 100 years ago, that star was falling. And today, uh, Britain is a powerful nation, but she's not remotely a superpower, right? We can see in some way that's already happening in our country. We're not the economic power we used to be. Uh, we have been degraded um, for the first time in history in terms of our credit report, and we ought to with a $20 trillion <laughs> debt. <laughs> I mean, how long can we do this, right? And so all of a sudden, other nations are no longer trusting in the U.S. dollar like they used to. And the U.S. dollar is what every other currency is connected to. And that's why when the New York stock market is in decline, well, you know, Beijing and Tokyo is too. We already in some way have a global economy, exactly as predicted in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, we don't have the influence we once did. Half of our warplanes can't fly today. I mean, militarily. Uh, the U.S. military has been so degraded. What, what makes for a world superpower? Military and economy, your currency. And all of that's weakening. Now, here's the point I want you to say, though. I, see, I, I'm not a doom and gloom guy like, you know, the U.S. is going down and, you know, we all better, you know, store up our canned goods. You guys remember Y2K? <laughs> Some of you that are old enough to, isn't that a trip? Isn't that a hilarious to think? That was like 18 years ago. And, uh, you know, everything's going to shut down at midnight. And we're just, everybody was sure of it. I mean, the experts, I mean, even the experts were saying, we don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be bad. It's going to be like stepping back 100 years in time. Electrical grid's going down, right? So here's what I say. You know, be prepared for a disaster, but, you know, keep it in balance. Because here, here's what I'm convinced Scripture teaches, guys. You've got a strong Israel right up to the end. Ezekiel chapter 38, guess what? Ezekiel sees. This Russian-Arab coalition, these enemies march on Israel, guess what? Uh, their cities aren't walled. What does that mean? This is an Israel that's at peace. They're not expecting war. This is an Israel, an end-time description of Israel where she's strong, she's prosperous, she's at peace. And the point I'm making is this. If the U.S. ever ceases to exist in some way as a power, guess what? Israel ceases to exist as a power. And so for that reason, I think the U.S., Jerry, stays strong relatively right up to the end, right up to the rapture of the church. But think about the effects of the rapture when it happens. 9-11, uh, look at what 9-11, just something the size of 9-11, look at what that did to our nation. Stock market plummets, all of a sudden there's pandemonium, there's panic. Uh, it, it shakes the foundation of our society. Now, imagine 25 million Americans disappearing instantly. Can you fathom and imagine? Not just the pandemonium, the panic, but just imagine all of a sudden... Uh, it's just cataclysm, all right? Um, people don't show up for work the next day. How many of you would like the rapture to happen on a Sunday night? Yeah. Monday morning never comes. Woohoo! <laughs> people don't pay their mortgage, they don't pay their bills. Woohoo! <laughs> Got off the hook on that one. Nope, not sending anything to Chase this, this month. Uh, but here's the point. What happens then? You're talking about economic and political and military. You're just, it's an implosion. It's an implosion. 
And not only that, but think about other parts of the world where uh, there is no real strong Christian witness in places in Asia or throughout the Middle East. It will be instantly impacting us here in the U.S. where there's still um, a strong Christian witness, a strong Christian population instantly affected. We're talking, you know, car crashes and plane crashes and, uh, you know, horrible, horrible situations, tragedies. You're talking 25 million conservatively instantly disappearing. Other places in the world, guess what? They won't even know what's happened until they turn on the news the next day. So who's going to be more impacted? As countries go, the places where they're the most Christians, right? And so I'm convinced, Jerry, what really will make the U.S. cease as a power, as a player, as we know it, it will be the rapture. It'll be a cataclysmic event that will basically push a reset button on the geopolitical scene of the world. And out of that leadership vacuum, the U.S. leaves will be the Antichrist who will step through that leadership vacuum and then broker peace in the Middle East, and then all eyes are going to now be on him. I think the U.S. will then be kind of melded into uh, the kingdom of Antichrist that we've, we've learned will be partly Western and partly Eastern, partly uh, European and partly Arab. Yep. Verse 7, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. Who's the beast and kind of the timing? Yeah. Okay, so um, let's see here. The beast out of the bottomless pit is released. Uh, go with me over to, um, let's see. Let's see, Revelation... I'm looking for it, looking for it. This is, uh, by the way, guys, somebody left their Bible, left in ladies' men's handicapped restroom basement, if anybody knows who this is, just so you know. So I'm not using my Bible tonight, which means, um, is it 17? So, okay. Hang on. I'm going to find it. Look at, uh, I'm looking for the name Apollyon and Abaddon. Somebody find it for me. Somebody help me. Help the pastor out. So it's Revelation 17, 8? Is that right? Okay. Revelation 17, 8. Um, that's not exactly where I was after, if you want to know the truth. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be an awesome chapter when we do get there. It's going to be a great place to study together. So somebody help me out. Okay, that sounds about right. Revelation, no, it's not going to be 13. Somebody do this for me. Abaddon, Apollyon. Somebody look that up. We're going to find it right here, right now. This is what you have a concordance for. Okay, and as soon as you do, I'm going to find the right text. Okay, thank you. Revelation chapter 9. There it is. So look at what happens here. Revelation 9. And let's start back up here in uh, verse 7. 
The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and they were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. Thanks. It took forever to get there. Guys, look, I, I've been doing all the work. At, you know, I'm, I'm not doing any more work, okay? You're going to have to do some of the work here. Just telling you. All right. So uh, here it is. Uh, they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek, he has a name Apollyon. And so what happens here in Revelation 9, as you remember, as we're studying the trumpet judgments here, uh, the uh, bottomless pit is opened up. And uh, this bottomless pit opens up, and this demonic army ascends out of the bottomless pit. Where's the bottomless pit? I told you I'm not doing all the work anymore. Yeah, it's at hell. It's in the middle of the earth. Remember what Jesus taught about Hades in Luke chapter 16? Uh, in Hades, in Luke chapter 16, on one side you have Abraham's bosom where the Old Testament saints went because they could not go into the presence of God apart from the shed blood of the Son of God. So God sent them to a place called Abraham's bosom. Jesus called it paradise when he looked at the thief on the cross and said, this day you'll be with me in paradise, right? And then there was a great goal fixed between Abraham's bosom and what we commonly call hell, where the rich man was, right? And this great gulf, Jesus said, was fixed between the two, and so that people over there couldn't pass over to those over here, and those over here couldn't pass to folks over there. And so this great gulf is also known then as the bottomless pit. Why would this great gulf of Luke 16 be called the bottomless pit? Because why? It has no bottom. <laughs> yeah, because hey, if you're in the center of the earth, which way's down? If you're in the center of the earth, every which way you go is what? Up. And so this great gulf in the center of the earth, known as the bottomless pit, because every direction you look is up. And uh, there are currently this demonic army that he's described here in Revelation 9 that's going to be released with the sounding of the fifth trumpet, and they have a king over them known as Abaddon or Apollyon. And uh, that name means destroyer in the Greek and Hebrew. And that's who you're talking about here then um, in Revelation chapter 11. All right? Good question. Yes. Thank you, Martin. Do you have any theory on what the explanation for all the Christians that are raptured? Oh, that the boy. Have? <laughs> boy, do I ever. But you guys will think I'm crazy. I mean, you guys will think I've absolutely fallen out of my tree. What is, what is the lie? That's what you're asking, right? 
the strong delusion that will be sent. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2, and we don't have but a blip. I mean, we've got five minutes to talk about this, and then we got to be done. So what could be the lie? We know there's going to be a lie given for the rapture. Uh, some explanation given to the masses for what has happened to these millions and millions of people. And uh, whoever's Bible this is, it's a great Bible, but it's brand new. It needs to be broken in. I'm breaking it tonight because all the pages are sticking together. So, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 says, uh, where should we pick it up here? How about, about right here in... Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. That day will not come unless there come a falling away first. I'm convinced we're living in that time. The falling away of the church, the, ap the apostia, the apostasy. Uh, and that man of sin, next thing, is to be revealed. Who is he? The Antichrist. He's going to be revealed, that son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, that rebuilt Jewish temple we studied tonight. He will go into that rebuilt temple in the tribulation, according to what Paul says right here in 2 Thessalonians 2, showing himself that he is God. Revelation 13, demanding to be worshipped as God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining the Holy Spirit, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains the Holy Spirit will do so until he's taken out of the way at the rapture. And then the lawless one will be revealed, when the Lord, whom the Lord shall consume with the breath of his mouth. Oh, look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now watch this. The Antichrist, it says right here in verse 9, will have the power to do what? Wonders or miracles that do lie lying wonders meaning he'll have supernatural power now do you ever wonder why it seems that culture is completely crazed with what super superhumans i mean look at the movies that people are watching the uh x factor the marvel shows the you got you, all this stuff, right? Right? That's what this is describing here. A God-like human with God-like abilities. And society's even now mentally being prepared for someone to come who really is in some way Superman. Okay? We're, we're just, just, just a minute. Now, look at what it says. This is um, in verse 10. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because why? They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them what? Strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all will be condemned because they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What this says here is that if you knew the gospel, you had the truth before the rapture, you will not have the ability to receive the truth after the rapture because God will send you strong delusion. You will believe a lie. There will be a lie that is permeated worldwide to explain the disappearance of millions and millions of people. Now, 
some of the world's smartest, most trained, most intellectual people in the entire world. All right? Richard Dawkins would be one of them. One of the great renowned intellectuals of our day that literally all over the world lectures on college campuses. Now he's a world-renowned intellectual, world-renowned atheist, and guess what he believes the answer is to how humans got on earth? It's a really, really scientific-sounding theory called directed panspermia. Basically, it's what? Aliens. He believes aliens seeded the earth as a colony from another country, another globe, another world. And I want you to understand, this, this sounds like science fiction. This man is a scientist. He believes we are the offspring of aliens. And that historically, and you can see this in much of archaeology, the Sumerian tablets would be an example, historically, where godlike beings far, far more evolved than our species have come throughout human history, cohabitated in human civilization to advance human evolution, promising to return again. At such time, we need more advancement in our human evolution. Do you know that every single ancient people of the world have in their oral tradition that gods from the heavens came, cohabitated among them, promising to one day return? Now you have a godlike being who has the ability to do signs and wonders that lie. In other words, godlike things that make it look like he's God, but he's not God. And the world will follow him because of what they see. They will be deceived by these lies. So what could be the lie that is permeating humanity for the disappearance of millions of people? Well, you have a godlike human with godlike ability. And you have throughout the archaeological records of ancient men, godlike beings cohabitating in human civilization, promising to return again, were some of the smartest people on the planet today. The most trained, the most intellectual, with the most PhDs behind their name, believing that we were seated here by aliens to colonize this planet. Could it be that just maybe the gods return? And just maybe the lie that will be propagated is that we have taken some of you to colonize another planet like we originally colonized this planet. And yet they won't believe <laughs> Yeah. This is what's amazing about guys like Dawkins. I mean, look, it, uh, you know, the, the book, I love the title, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. What is more plausible, more rational, God or aliens? I'm just saying. You know what I'm saying? So, who knows? I, that's the speculation. You just start connecting the dots. You have uh, pop culture that is completely crazed. Look at what the movies are. Crazed with, uh, you know, I don't know, I, the Marvel movies. What else are there? The, say it. The yeah, all this stuff. I mean, my kids watch it. I kind of sort of do uh, once in a while if I'm super bored and need a family night. 
Um, it just starts to make sense. Start connecting the dots. There have been more movies made in the last 25 years about what? Yeah, turn on the History Channel during the day, and guess what you get? About six solid hours of what? Ancient aliens. Once again, these learned, educated men who are looking back in the archaeological past and the archaeological record that are absolutely convinced that aliens have been among us and will one day be once again. And guys, this sounds crazy, but do you realize our government spends millions and millions of taxpayer dollars looking for life in the cosmos? Not to mention not-for-profits, uh, the SETI Institute, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, millions of dollars privately donated to these places, convinced that life is out there. And guess what? Life is out there. But it's not the kind of life they're looking for. All right? Ephesians 6.12, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Yeah, there's intelligent life out there. Ephesians 2.2, 2, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Yep, there's intelligent life out there, but it's not the kind of intelligent life they're looking for. And one day, I'm convinced, the gods, loosely used, the gods are going to return. And that will be the explanation given. And seeing will be believing for a faithless generation. Okay, I told you you'd think I'm crazy, but I don't care. <laughs> I'll see you in two weeks, right back here. We'll pick it up there in Revelation 11 next time baptisms at the lake next week. Love you all. Have a great, great week, okay?